Welcome to the Pemberley Podcast, where we discuss Jane Austen adaptations. I'm Jillian. I'm Yolanda. Let's dive in with a quote from Jane Austen's Emma. Were I to fall in love indeed, it would be a different thing, but I have never been in love. It is not my way or my nature, and I do not think I ever shall. So this week we have a special episode to discuss a new book, a new Jane Austen adaptation, which is a modern retelling of Emma called Emma of 83rd Street by Audrey Beleza and Emily Harding, available now. We're going to start by talking about our thoughts on the book. We really loved it. There's so much to unpack. It's always exciting to have a new Emma adaptation. And at the end, we are going to speak with the authors about just their process and their inspiration. And and we had a really good conversation with them. At the table, let's tell you a little bit about this book. Beautiful, clever, and rich, Emma Woodhouse has lived 23 years in her tight-knit Upper East Side neighborhood with very little to distress or vex her. That is, until her budding matchmaking hobby results in her sister's marriage. Emma must start her final year of grad school grappling with an entirely new emotion, boredom. So when she meets Nadine, a wide-eyed Ohio transplant with a heart of gold, Emma not only sees a potential new friend, but a new project. If only her overbearing neighbor, George Knightley, would get out of her way. Handsome, smart, and successful, the only thing that frustrates Knightley more than a corked whiskey is his childhood friend, Emma. He is only too happy to lecture her on all the finer points of adulthood she's so hell-bent on ignoring. But Knightley can't help but notice that the girl next door is a woman now, one who he suddenly can't get out of his head. So let's talk about our thoughts on that. That's, first of all, very thorough description. Thank you, Goodreads. <laughs> what I like about this book is it's from both Emma and Knightley's point of view. Yeah. I always love a dual POV because for the heroine and her agony, I'm like, I get it. I know what you're going through. <laughs> and I never know what, the, I like have no idea what they're agonizing about. So I liked also getting it from his point of view. Yeah, it's not a perspective we often see with, we don't see with Emma, is at what point did those feelings change for Knightley? And what was like kind of like the moments that happened along the way? And it really is for Knightley moments, you know? It's like, tiny little things and he's realizing oh this young girl he grew up with is now like someone who's like very grown up and could be a potential match for him emma does feel like a very modern story yeah because she's a single woman she doesn't really want to get married in fact she's like that wouldn't work well for me because i i remember like there's a quote from emma that's like there are women out there who aren't half as much mistress of their own house as i am of hartfield Hmm. and so she very much like has her own thing going on her own life what i thought was great about this adaptation is they you know she's like a popular girl she has a lot of friends but they've all just graduated college a couple years ago she's the only one who's still in new york and she finds herself for the first time ever to be pretty lonely Yeah, and we find her in her final year of grad school, as mentioned, which we don't see a lot of the grad school part of it. It's more of like this glamorous grad school experience where we don't need to see it. It's like Gossip Girl. I think there's a lot of a lot of Gossip Girl comes to mind when I read this book, just because you have a New York socialite, you have someone who is well connected, um, but also very sure of herself and very confident in in her own world. So she's not letting anyone drag her down. And she's kind of really creating her own path, even though Knightley tries to correct her in her path, but she's very set on what she wants to do. She is. I completely agree with you. I got very strong Gossip Girl vibes, if only not for the fact that 
isn't their whole thing in Gossip Girl, they, like, have breakfast on the steps of the Met because it's across the street from their school? Yeah. <laughs> like, the Met plays a really big part in this book. I mean, something I do like about it is, and something that feels very Emma, is she knows what she wants, but she also kind of doesn't know. Like, she likes yeah. to try a lot of different things when she tells Knightley that she really wants this internship at the Met and that she wants to earn it for herself. She doesn't want her dad to make a call. Uh, he says, like, are you sure you really want this the way that you wanted that and that and that? Right. And so he kind of, in a rude way, reminds her that she likes to try various things, which is not a crime, especially when you're young and you're still figuring out what your deal is. But for a lot of this book, she thinks that this internship at the Met and a job there is something that she really wants because, I mean, Emma's like the kind of wealthy where – they had these famous paintings and these like really important historical paintings literally hanging in her townhouse growing up. And her mom was a lover and a collector of art. And after she died, when Emma was like two years old, her dad basically loaned all these paintings to the Met. She has to go to the Met to see her own paintings. One of them that they mention is called Flowers on a Red Carpet by Pierre Bonnard. We're looking at it right now. It's a it's beautiful. It's a fun, gorgeous piece with bold red and, and bold colors. And I can only imagine how much fun it was for the authors to kind of reminisce on their time living in New York. We should mention the authors are from New York or they grew up there in their 20s and 30s. So a lot of this is also inspired by their own experiences in New York. So it's a lot of fun insights into that world. And you feel like you are also gallivanting around the city alongside these characters. It feels like a very fun wish fulfillment kind of a life where she doesn't have to worry about paying for this stuff. It just kind of happens. Yeah. And and I will say a lot of the interpersonal relationships that happen in Emma are also kind of modernized because our Mr. Elton is just this coffee shop guy, Zane. He works at the local coffee shop. He's a massive flirt. And of course, Emma sees him making eyes at Nadine. Nadine is, of course, our Harriet. I think Emma and Knightley are the only names that are the same and everyone else's names are kind of changed. But Nadine is our Harriet. She is in one of Emma's art history classes. She's from Ohio. She's a lovely girl. One of the girls who comes to New York with stars in her eyes, doesn't really know which way is up. And Emma could not be more thrilled to take her under her wing. I think that's what's great about this book is you still have the main plot points of Emma as like your goalpost in a way of like this story. So you have those characters that you meet along the way. You have Box Hill, which is always a devastating scene to read or see or whatever. You have some of the key quotes of, if I loved you less, I could talk about it more. So you have like those very recognizable features of the book, but all modernized in this really fun world. It is really fun. And Knightley is also kind of perfect. I feel like they, they kind of fixed the age gap in a really appropriate yeah, way. Because yeah, yeah. in the book, they're like 17 years yes. apart, which which can feel like a lot. And in the book, Emma's 23 Knightley's 30. So it's a solid seven years apart, which is for sure enough that growing up, I think no one would ever look at them and think, hmm, they could be an item. Right, yeah. We should also talk about the spice level of this book because it is still a romance book. Yep. We give it two peppers. <laughs> out of five. <laughs> out, out of five, five peppers. 
Because it's really all in the last 50 pages. It's pretty condensed. And you think you're like, all right, this is what we're expecting. And then boom, it really hits you. <laughs> they, You know what? With the spice, they go there. They, they totally, go. like, the funny thing about Emma is it is such a slow burn because they really spend the whole of the book taking turns realizing that they're in love with each other. It kind of yeah. hits nightly first. Later on, it hits Emma Obviously, they have that big scene at the end where he's, she's like, please, I want to be your friend. Tell me we'll always be friends. And he's like, I don't want to be your friend. Yeah. I want to. And it was pretty much, that's our moment where they get together. And that's, you know, in our book, that's when the spice starts to happen. So it's there. It is for <laughs> sure there. And I didn't see it coming because it was like, we were just such a slow burn, yeah. you know. So we really enjoyed this book. We're hopeful of maybe potential more retellings Audrey and Emily will potentially tell, especially because not to give it away, we won't give it away. There is a crucial character introduced at the end. Well, we didn't know that he was actually there all along. And then you reveal something about him. And then you're like, oh, where could this go? So maybe there's hope for more retellings in the future. I love a good romance world where all the characters just get their own book where they're coupling yeah. up. So without further ado, please enjoy our interview with co-authors Audrey Beleza and Emily Harding. Thank you guys for having us. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for joining us. We read the book. We love the book. We obviously have a soft spot for adaptations because we have an entire podcast where that's all we talk about. So is it safe to say that Emma is your favorite Jane Austen book? And what inspired you to start like to write this together? Well, I think as far as my favorite, I think and I Audrey, I think you're the same, but we both love Pride and Prejudice. And I don't know if that was just the, because the first one I picked up was Pride and Prejudice, but I love it. But over the course of writing this, I think Emma has now <laughs> taken that top spot because she's just such an amazing character. And I have a whole new not that I didn't always love her, but a new appreciation for her which has been um, really lovely being able to dive into it like that. So, but the process of deciding it, Audrey, you remember it better than I do because there was wine involved, but you there, was, there was wine involved. The idea came to us. Um, it was the beginning of the pandemic and we were both home. Emily lives in Texas. I'm in New Jersey. And we were trying to homeschool our kids on computers. And, you know, we couldn't go into work. We missed our friends and our families and we missed each other, just like everybody was going through. It was late one night and Emily and I had already been sending each other things that we had written. I guess there was wine, there was texting, it was late. And we were like, Emily was like, we should write something together. And I said, well, how do you do that? We have this television background of working together for so long that we sort of approached it the same way. It worked and we just, within about four minutes, we were like, okay, so we're going to write something together. Let's do something we both know. So we'll have some guidelines of things that will be familiar to each other. And I think we had recently watched the Anya Taylor-Joy Emma version um, in because it, it was about 2020. I think we both had seen that within that month. And um, so we're like, let's do Emma. Oh, I love Emma. And then it just kind of started going from there. I feel like to not only write together for the first time, but then also taking something that has been adapted so much is, is always like a unique challenge too. How did you approach balancing the original story with integrating modern elements? Honestly, it was a lot 
easier. And I think that was a happy accident with Emma is that she's a very modern character. Yeah. I think a lot of her issues being a financially independent woman who's fine with that, who doesn't really feel the need to get married and is very self-assured is way ahead of her time even then. And still now people, you know, will somehow find a way to judge someone like that in modern times. So I think taking that to now, a lot of it kind of wrote itself. We're like, well, obviously she would, you know, these would be the issues and how they would translate. And then we both, Audrey and I lived in New York together in our twenties and thirties. So we again, keep going with the years. Yeah. And we knew we're like, well, obviously we want to write something set in New York city. Cause I just mm-hmm. moved to Texas a year or two before then. And it was a way of kind of reliving those years for us, but also it just, it fits so perfectly that she would be that Upper East Side girl. So it wasn't as challenging as maybe we we had anticipated, but it was a lot of fun. And I'll also add that when we first started writing it, we weren't thinking, oh, let's make this into a novel that we're going to put out there to the world. We really thought that we were just writing this for each other. So Hmm. we weren't so worried about, oh, it has to be exactly like this. It was more like, oh, will Emily like this when I was writing something? And I think Emily thought the same, like, oh, this is yeah. for Audrey. So it it wasn't this, you know, big, like elaborate, figure it out situation. We just sort no. of started writing and it kind of came together um, kind of slowly. Those are just my favorite moments, I think, during the pandemic writing it is I would be, you know, hold up and my husband would come in and I'd just be like, in my pajamas at four o'clock in the afternoon, like laughing to myself. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, Audrey's going to love this. And it was purely like for <laughs> only her, but it was just those moments of think, you know, reading what she wrote and like laughing to myself and then sending her something and waiting for her thoughts and just getting a laughing emoji or like a phone call with just us both laughing or crying or, you know, it was, it was really special. That's amazing. I mean, that's, <laughs> so you didn't, you guys were writing all of these words and you didn't know it was going to be a book. I think we no. knew we we knew that we were telling Emma we were retelling Emma yeah and that was it and it was could we do this this is a fun exercise and halfway through yeah I think it started to take shape but like this is oh my gosh we're really doing this and that motivated us I think anybody who takes on a big project the best way to do it is small increments because you don't mm-hmm. then you look back you're like wow look at all we've done so towards the end I think we realized it oh we're writing this is a book this is a this is a full book yeah Just our trying. original intention wasn't to do something like this it was yeah it was like let's just write something and then let's see what happens like wouldn't that be fun to write something together and then at the end we're like this is long enough this is a book this is should we try to send this out should we try to make this a little more polished and and then it kind of went from there I feel like that's such an organic and freeing way to approach it too because otherwise you get too bogged down with the perfection of it all but um that sounds amazing well, that happened later with a revision. That's sure. right. <laughs> I'm just going to say that was the uh, was five like, that hours in. <laughs> the beginning La La Land was fun. That's true. Well, That's true. I mean, at what point did it go from just like fun back and forth to like, this is a book and we should take this seriously? Like, was it a scene or was it just like, we've been do- we've been at this for six months? Yeah, I will say that Emily and I have this television background and we work and develop television shows that we spend years on and they go nowhere. Whenever we do a project, we do it 100% and we kind of just hope that something good might happen. So we've developed these shows and and then you work on them, you edit them, you produce them, and then it's just a pilot and it goes nowhere. I don't know when that happened, when it changed for us with the book. I think we just sent it to friends being like, look what we yeah. did. This is amazing. Yeah, I'm like trying to remember. You know, Audrey has a friend, Molly. She used to work in publishing and we sent it to her. And she got in touch with us really quickly after reading it. 
and said, you really should send this out to agents. And I think that was the first time we were like, really? You think we yeah. have, this is something? <laughs> After that, it just happened really quickly. And we're very lucky because I think publishing is a very slow industry. And I think a lot of people spend years querying and waiting for that deal. And it just happened to fall into place really quickly for us. And I think we realized that that was really special. Also very surprising. <laughs> we're humbled. We feel very lucky. That's great. So another thing that we really liked about this book is that the setting really took us to the sort of like 90s and early 2000s rom-coms that were always set in New York City. And it was just like, great. What are some of your favorite like wish fulfillment moments like that, that were either modernized or that you like tweaked a little bit that you added to the story? What's funny about having lived in New York is that there are those yeah. rom-com moments. Like there are these beautiful, I think the Met was Part of that, I think when Harry met Sally, there's a big scene at the Met and the Met is really one of the most romantic, wonderful places. So I think that there's a lot of wonderful rom-com moments in New York. But Audrey and I also had just some of the worst dates in our 20s in New York. Like New York is lovely, but it's also I'm like, oh, that's where I had, you know, met that guy who was awful. It's this balance. So I think this was a wish fulfillment for rom-com moments, but also a way of us laughing at some really awful dating experiences we both had. New York is so wonderful like that, where every quarter could be something special. Every quarter could be, oh, this happened to me here. This happened to, from this movie, I remember this happening here. So it was really, we had the whole city and all of our background to think about and to put into the book. Bars that we used to go to or things that we used to do like karaoke or the museum or or whatever. And that was really fun to be able to incorporate that into the novel. It's such a fun setting. I love that you mentioned to Emma 2020 as being like a, a kind of a, maybe a spark uh, that both of you had watched and that kind of evolved into becoming something like this, because I felt like that was also top of mind for me when I was reading it. I loved how modern that movie felt. And I feel like that also really lends itself nicely into this book too. I feel like I was picturing those actors when I was reading them, even though the descriptions are a little different. But did you have any actors in mind as you were building out these characters or who would be your dream cast for these roles? It's so funny. We were just talking. We were just talking about this. <laughs> we, um, we did, I think, again, going back to our TV backgrounds, we, and writing together, you know, you have to make sure that the characters and the places and everything are grounded together because it's so easy to both completely diverge in your descriptions or your how you're picturing things. So I think we made like really casting sheets for each character and had who we you know, in our mind, if we're describing them, mannerisms, they're attached to this actor. Also, I'm aware that, at, you know, I don't want to put that on readers because like you said, you know, the, mm -hmm. the actors from 2020 and, I, and it never occurred to me, honestly. And I love the gentleman who played Knightley in that, but I'd never pictured him as our Knightley. So mm -hmm. I know I'm hesitant to share because I don't want to like kind of put it in readers' minds to like yeah. let them see it and it ruin it because it's kind of a joy as a reader to in your head picture what you think they. I want to better picture the coffee shop scene where George <laughs> goes in and confronts Zane. <laughs> I want to see that play out. I know. Well, Zane actually was a fun character to try to cast because essentially you're just trying to figure out someone who has a very punchable face. Yeah, great, <laughs> it's great like activity. Oh, it's so uh, very cute. cathartic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were there any other films or books that you guys used as inspiration while writing this? Well, I feel like we both loved the 1996 uh, Gwyneth Paltrow version of Emma. That is definitely one of our favorites. And Clueless. We've seen that movie both a hundred times, at least, I'm sure. 
I just sort of grew up with that movie. So I feel like both of those were just amazing retellings, adaptations. And I think they informed us in what to modernize and what to change. Because I think, yeah, I always thought of Frank Churchill as a villain who never had his comeuppance. I just think that he is too, I just didn't like him. And Audrey loved, it doesn't, and I think it was Ewan McGregor's fault. Mm. And we love him. (laughs) And I think that the conversations we had in my mind, you know, that character evolved into, he's not a bad guy. He's just not the right guy for Emma. And I think that that really helped inform then our version of him in Montgomery Knox. He was just not a bad guy, just not who she should be with. And she realizes the same thing. So I think that helped Ewan McGregor in a weird way, helped that. And then obviously Clueless, but I think Clueless and if you watch Clueless now, it's great, but you realize she's 15. She's so young. And I, in the book, Emma, she's the same age as Lizzie Bennett. She's an adult woman. So I think we were also very aware of that and trying to bring her into the, you know, a realm of being an adult, even though she's in grad school, that adds a little bit of to the naivete, but she's still a grown woman who's making her own choices. And it's not from a place of immaturity, just maybe sheltered. She's a bit sheltered. In talking about the characters, we'd want to know, is there a character from your own book you most identify with or from any Jane Austen novels you most identify with? Good question. Ooh. You go first. I need to think about that one. (laughs) I think the one thing about Austen that I I think is fascinating is as you get older, you grow with her books. Like I think Mm. when I was young, Pride and Prejudice and Emma and those characters spoke to me. And as I get older, I appreciate persuasion so much more just of where she was in her life. And then to be really humbled and stare at a wall for five hours is to realize how old the characters actually were. Like Mrs. Bennett is likely in her mid forties. And I think when we really, when we did the ages and I just was like, I need to go and sit in a dark room and just really think about this for a minute because she's always again, cast as in her late fifties, mid sixties. And they're all much younger. Even Miss hmm. Bates is much younger than she's cast in normally. So I think, yeah, growing with the main characters is fantastic because you also see how Jane Austen grew up with the books. But man, those those ages, <laughs> when you really think about it, it's, yeah. All the different characters, there's things I want to take from them that I relate to a little bit. Like some of the way that Lizzie Bennet acts, I feel like I understand. Um, the closeness that she has with her sister, I really relate to that. My sister's my best friend. So I feel that. But what Emily was just saying, when you start really looking at the ages, I mean, I feel like right now, you know, Mrs. Bennett, she's in her early 40s, I think. I'm like, yeah. and she is making sure that her, that she's sort of a helicopter parent, making sure everybody's <laughs> taken care of. Like, I guess I'm sad. I kind of relate to her right now, but I want to be the heroine yeah. who's, you know, <laughs> yeah, underappreciated. Kind of, yeah, underappreciated. <laughs> <laughs> figuring out my kids' lives, my lives, yeah. like try, my life, trying to figure it out. Yeah. That's a good I'm question. Sure. I think about that more. <laughs> I'm sure Mrs. Bennett, she was once the heroine of her own story. We just kind of like Let's write up. that one. Yeah. There you go. That's There's true. your next, uh, I don't know if you guys plan on, and this is sort of a, another question, if you guys plan on writing any more Jane Austen adaptations together or any other books together, but... Like the closest I've seen to Mrs. Bennett having her own story was Longborn when there's like some flashbacks or some Mm. references to like when she and Mr. Bennett got married. But like she doesn't have her own like story. No. And she should. I think she should. I really actually. I know. know, Maybe. Maybe I I like Mrs. Bennett. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think we've had so much fun. I think there was, I think we both love, who doesn't love Austin? But I think through this process of us both discovering that we both love her as much as we do and having a good excuse to dive in and start reading the books again and learning more about it. 
I'd just love to stay in this world as long as possible. It's just, it's lovely. I, I have such a new appreciation for not only the books, but her as an author and as a woman during that time. Fingers yeah. crossed. We've managed to stay in this world for coming up on seven <laughs> years now. So there's always new ways well we found to <laughs> yeah. talk about Austin or adapt Austin, retell it in new ways. So you've both done such a unique and fresh take on on the story of Emma. So again, we're, we really love the book and, and we're so glad to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you, you for guys. reading it. Yeah, we really yeah. appreciate that. It's been so lovely talking to you realize how many other Austin fans there are. And that we could all, we really could all just sit here for hours and talk about it. So we really (laughs) appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening. Tune in for our next installment of the Pemberley podcast, which is going to be Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and support us on Patreon at the Pemberley. And you can email us with any questions or comments at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. 